would invite you to take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Romans. Amen. Today we begin Romans chapter 9. The end of chapter 8 it kind of marks the conclusion of the first major section in the book of Romans. In these first eight chapters, uh, Paul has discussed doctrines like justification, sanctification, and glorification. And, and before he moves on to address the practical duties and expectations of those that follow Christ, as he contains those instructions from chapter 12 through 15. But before he does that, he spends these next three chapters to continue his teaching on our justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These three chapters are to be taken as a unit. They're not to be separated from each other. They are to be taken as a whole. Uh, The problem lies in when different belief systems tend to focus on one chapter to the exclusion of another chapter. I said it before, I lost some of you in the terminology, so I'll try to say it a little bit differently this time. There are those that will solely turn to Romans chapter 9 and solely go to that chapter for their understanding and their explanation how God is sovereign over and in and through salvation. There are others that will focus exclusively on chapter 10. Chapter 10 is filled with whosoever will. And to look at chapter 10 and say, see, it's all about free will. It's all about human responsibility. So there's chapter 9, says God's sovereignty, chapter 10, whosoever will, and they'll go to one chapter to the exclusion of the other, now realizing that this is a unit and must be taken together. So God's sovereignty in chapter 9 flows into human responsibility in chapter 9. From verses 1 through 29, we're going to see God's sovereignty in, in salvation. But beginning in verse number 30 and through chapters 10 and 11, we're going to see how we are responsible to respond. And there is no attempt between Romans 9.29 and 9.30. There's no attempt in between both of those things to try to explain the paradox that exists between the two. And so what often happens is we take one side to the exclusion of the other. We say it's either God is sovereign or free will, when in reality we should take both of those things together and realize that it is a both-and scenario. It's both because God is sovereign and we respond that salvation is possible. In these next three chapters... Paul begins each one with a personal statement. Each time he identifies himself with the people of Israel and he expresses his profound concern for them. In chapter 11, he writes about his conviction that God has not rejected them. In chapter 10, he begins with his prayerful longing for their salvation. 
And in our text this morning in chapter 9, he expresses sorrow and anguish that he feels over their rejection of the Messiah. Verse 1 says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Paul is saying, I, I swear to you, I'm, I, I'm being honest. I, I'm just being real. I, I've got this burden that is great and is deep. I, I experience this sorrow on a daily basis. And so much so, look at verse 3. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now let me be clear. Of course, this is not a possibility. It is not an option for us. We are unable to transfer our salvation from ourselves unto someone else. We can't pass salvation on to others. Salvation is a personal response to the provision of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's words here are an emotional declaration, not a theological one. Okay, And so chapter 8 ends with this great joy and assurance. But here, we see a dynamic shift has occurred. A shift has occurred between uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9 because 9 begins with a great sorrow, a deep burden for His people. The theme of chapter 9 was God's election of Israel. Paul is going to give several privileges that belong to the people of Israel because of their position as being chosen by God. And so verse 4 says, Who are Israelites? To whom belongs the adoption as sons? And the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. Whose are the fathers from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He identifies these special privileges. He begins by saying how Israel was adopted by God. Adopted by God to be His very own people, His own possession. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Beginning of verse number 6, it says, For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for His own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Yahweh did not set His affection on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all people. But because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your fathers, Yahweh brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You you shall now therefore, you shall know therefore that Yahweh your God, He is God. The faithful God who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. 
Israel was adopted by God according to his own sovereign plan and purpose, selected by God, not on the basis of their size or their strength, but in accordance to his will. So Israel adopted by God. Not only that, Israel was given the glory of God. His glory was in the tabernacle. His glory filled the temple. We see that in places like Exodus chapter 40. Verse 34 and 35 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had dwelt on it, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Israel had been given the glory of God to dwell among them. They were adopted by God. Not only that, the text says that God also gave unto Israel His covenants. The first beginning with Abraham, and then additional covenants to Moses and to David. They were given His covenants. They were given His law. uh, The law that would govern their political structure. The laws that would guide them in their social living. Laws that would guide them and instruct them in their religious life and practice. So they were given His law. Then the text says that God gave them His service. The service of God. This is referring to the ministry in the tabernacle and in the temple. was given to His people. He gave them the promises and the patriarchs. Referred to as the fathers at the beginning of verse number 5. The purpose of all of this blessing was that Jesus Christ, through Israel, might come into the world. All of these blessings were given freely to Israel and to no other nation. And yet, when the Messiah appeared, they rejected and ultimately crucified Him. So, Does this mean that Israel's failure, does that mean that Israel's failure means that that God's Word has failed? And the answer is no. Absolutely not. God is faithful no matter what mankind might do. And that's why, look at verse number 6. Verse 6 says, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Then he says, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, the failure of the Jews to respond to the gospel of Jesus did not mean that the word of God has failed. Instead, this rejection was simply a current example of the principle of God's sovereign choice that was established in the Old Testament. Paul has reminded us earlier This is a truth that he's already presented to us. Back in chapter 2, he said it like this. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, And his praise is not from men, but from God. 
And so here in chapter 9, he, he says it like this, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And what we're going to see that in this next section from verses 7 all the way through 18, Paul is going to give three Old Testament illustrations that will illuminate the sovereignty of God. And we're going to look at all of them this morning. And we're going to look at them all rather quickly, too. So he starts with the choosing of Isaac. The first example begins in verse number 7. He says, Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed, but through Isaac your seed will be named. But you understand that God made a sovereign choice among all the physical descendants of Abraham. He made a sovereign choice in establishing the line of promise. And there were choices for God to make. God made a choice between Isaac and Ishmael. Not only that, Ishmael was the firstborn the first offspring, right? God, had, God made a choice between Ishmael, Isaac, and Abraham's six additional sons. So Ishmael was fathered by Abraham, and he was born to Hagar. They grew impatient with God's promising coming to fulfillment, so they tried to develop a plan B, and, he, and so uh, the, the plan B child, Ishmael. Well, that's not the line. Not only that, then that's in Genesis chapter 16. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 25, Sarah has died, and Abraham has fathered six additional sons through his wife Keturah. So, eight sons in total. Seven sons. These other seven sons were all Abraham's descendants. But these other seven sons were not counted as Abraham's seed in the line of promise. Instead, as God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 21, verse number 12, he said to him, oh, I'm off on my, sorry. There we go. Do not be distressed because of the boy and your maidservant. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her voice. For through Isaac, your seed shall be named. And so what's going to happen in our text, Paul is going to repeat this principle for emphasis, but yet he's going to say it in a slightly different terms, right? Look at verse 8. Verse 8, he says, that is, the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are considered as seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And so, to be a physical descendant of Abraham is not enough. Not enough. A person becomes a child of God through belief and submission to the promise of God. And so that's, that's the point of, of this illustration. Illustration number two. Now, now, now Paul transitions uh, to uh, the example of Jacob and Esau. Look at verse number 10. He says, not only this, but there was Rebekah also, 
when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. I think Paul wants to dispel any confusion arising from the fact that Abraham had eight sons by three different mothers. Okay? So any potential confusion is removed by the example in the illustration of Jacob and Esau. Why? Because they had the same father and the same mother. Not only did they have the same father and mother, they were twins. I mean, practically born at the same time. Look at verse 11. For through the twins, that though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose of God, according to His choice, would stand. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God chose Jacob before these baby twin brothers were ever born. The choice had nothing to do with actual good or the potential good of either of the two boys. The choice had nothing to do with actual evil or the potential of evil for either one. God's choice was not based upon the character of the boys or their conduct of those boys. No, His choice was made in accordance to His sovereign good pleasure. He made the choice. And Scripture says some strong language here. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved. Esau hated. To understand the context, when Scripture speaks of God hating, it ultimately means that God did not bestow His favor upon Esau. God did not give Esau grace. God did not extend unto Esau His salvific love. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau, I hated. It is a bold, bold statement. A strong declaration that is shocking to hear. And sometimes, in an attempt to soften the language, we try to explain or to simplify the meaning. And in an attempt... There are some that will look at this and they will suggest that this is a reference less to the individual brothers, but more to their descendants and their historical destiny. Some will try to attempt to explain it that way. Others will interpret the sentence and even uh, the New Living Translation, I believe, interprets or translates this as I chose Jacob and rejected Esau. But there's a third option. And the third option, I think, is the best and the right option. It's the one that helps us to understand what's happening. And that's the reality that what we see here is an example of a Hebrew idiom 
for, for preference. We've seen it before. Jesus uses this uh, idiom as well. In fact, the, the relative use of hate is also found in Luke chapter 14. Jesus speaking and He says, if anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. Now, Jesus obviously doesn't mean that we are to despise, loathe, and hate our parents, our siblings, our children, ourselves. No, what He's saying is, it should be obvious to those that are looking at us that we are called to love Jesus to such an extent that our love for others appears as hatred in comparison. That's how strong our love ought to be for the Father. And and so, while we rightfully cling to the promises of John 3, verse number 16, where it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have, current, present, tense language, have eternal life. So, while we rightfully cling to this promise, we must also remember the words of our Lord in verse number 36. It says that he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. With that understanding, Jesus makes it ever so clear in John chapter 6 verse number 65 when he says the words no one can come to me unless it has been granted unless sorry unless it has been granted him from the father no one can come to me no one which means our nat- natural state of sinfulness positions and places us as an enemy of God. We have no power, desire, will within ourselves to come to Jesus on our own strength. It'll never happen. It can happen. Paul's already talked about this. Turn with me back to Romans chapter 3. Just again, as a refresher. Romans 3. Here we see Paul reminds us just how bad our our condition is. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous. Not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. 
destruction and misery are in their path. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. To understand that the gift of grace means that God extends unto us the ability to come to Jesus Christ. Now, He does not give that ability to everyone. As the examples has illustrated for us, He gave it to Jacob, but not to Esau. And to us, that seems so unfair. To us, it seems unfair that God would give grace to some, but not to all. I believe that it is because of that thinking that Paul has that in mind when he raises this question in verse number 14. Verse 14, he says, What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? In answering his own question, he forcefully and emphatically declares, may it never be. I mean, absolutely not. Heaven forbid is what he's saying. As the sovereignty of God, he has the right to show mercy to whomever he chooses. That's his right. In fact, he is under no obligation to extend mercy unto anyone. Therefore, experiencing His mercy does not depend upon our desire, upon our wishes, upon our wants, or upon our works. No. No one deserves His mercy. And nobody can do enough to ever earn His mercy. And so Paul gives us this third illustration beginning in verse number 15 verse 15 he says for he says to moses i will have mercy on whom i have mercy and i will have compassion on whom i have compassion so let's be clear god has the right to show mercy would you agree a few of you are listening God has the right to extend grace. Yes? God has the right to be merciful. God has the right to be gracious. God has the right to be just. All of those are true. God shows or displays His mercy as He wills. As He chooses. God displays His mercy and compassion upon whom He wills. Therefore, if God chooses to extend mercy to someone, He has every right to do so even when that person doesn't deserve it. Again, if God extends His mercy to us, then He has the right to do so even when we don't deserve it. And so when when God spoke these words to Moses, it was back in Exodus chapter 33. Well, in chapter 32, Israel had just been worshiping the golden calf. 
Remember, they grew impatient with, and, and, and you know, where's Moses and not coming down? I don't know. Let's gather our gold. Oops, uh, out came this calf. Just happened. It's Aaron's response to it all. Israel is in the midst of gross idolatry when, when God spoke these words to Moses. And so Moses was interceding on behalf of Israel. Interceding on their behalf, asking God to forgive them of their idolatry. Because Moses knew that, that he knew that they didn't deserve God's forgiveness. What they deserved was to be wiped off the face of the earth. Moses intercedes on their behalf. As a result, the whole nation was not destroyed. About 3,000 individuals died. But in comparison to, to the whole nation, God carried out His justice upon 3,000, but extended grace and mercy to the thousands upon thousands upon hundreds of thousands more. Not because those, those few were more wicked or less godly. He chose to do so in accordance to His sovereign goodwill. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So in other words, when God spared the people from destruction, He continued to guide, protect, and deliver them. And He did so as a reflection of His mercy and His grace. God has the absolute right to condemn or to save as He desires. His sovereignty and His grace are compatible. In fact, the sovereignty of God and the grace of God cannot be separated from one another. Because all men are sinful, because we all deserve God's condemnation, none of us are wronged. None of us are treated unfairly if God chooses to condemn us. That's justice. Should God extend mercy towards anyone that is purely an act of His divine grace? Mercy and compassion are essentially synonymous. Mercy primarily refers to action, whereas compassion refers more to the feelings or the disposition that is behind the action. Verse number 16 says, So then, it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. Paul's third illustration, he's going to refer to the Egyptian Pharaoh of the Exodus here. In verse number 17, he says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, and the Scripture says this in Exodus 9, verse 16. Scripture says, For this very purpose I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you, and in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. As you read through the Exodus account, Oh, you can clearly see the hardening process that occurs in Pharaoh's heart. 
In fact, this hardening of Pharaoh's heart is mentioned at least 15 times from Exodus chapter 7 to Exodus chapter 14. In those chapters, it's mentioned at least 15 times. Sometimes we're told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Places like Exodus chapter 8, verse number 15, that says, Then Pharaoh saw that there was relief, and he hardened his heart with firmness and did not listen to them as Yahweh had spoken. Sometimes Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and sometimes God hardened Pharaoh's heart. An example of that is in Exodus chapter 9, verse number 12. And Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart with strength, and he did not listen to them, just as Yahweh had spoken to Moses. By declaring his word and by revealing his power, Pharaoh had an opportunity to make better choices. But instead, he, he, he resisted God and hardened his heart. The fault lie not with God. The fault rests upon Pharaoh. After all, it has been beautifully said that the same sunlight that melts the ice also hardens the clay. So God was not unrighteous in his dealing with Pharaoh. Pharaoh reaped exactly what he sowed. And yet, here's the beauty of it all. And yet, God overruled the wickedness of Pharaoh. God used that as an opportunity to display His glory. He used it for His good, for His glory, and the good of His people. That's just what Paul told us. Romans 8, 28. And so it is absolutely essential that we understand that God owes us nothing. Absolutely nothing. No one deserves salvation. No one deserves to be forgiven. No one deserves to be rewarded with the promise of heaven. Because of our sin, we are all under the condemnation of God. And if God were to enact His perfect justice upon us all, then we are in serious But, suppose, in the great demonstration of his love, God decides to be merciful to some. Not to everyone, but to some. Does this make him unrighteous? No. That's back to verse number 14. Let me illustrate it like this, and then I'm done. Suppose we've all just been through a trial. Every single one of us has been found guilty and are condemned. 100% in this room. We're all guilty, and we've been condemned. And so, while carrying out... His sentence for all of us, suppose that God decides to, to extend and to pardon one of us. For this illustration, I'll just choose me. 
I mean, just to be fair. Think about it. We're all guilty. Imagine God deciding to pardon you in the midst of everyone. If God carried out his perfect justice, then every single one of us would be condemned and have to face the sentence of that condemnation. But in his love, he extends and he pardons one. But let me ask you the question. Who was treated unfairly? No one. Everybody got what they deserved. One person, in the demonstration of the love of God, received grace and mercy. There is a paradox that, that is within these chapters. One that I will never be able to explain. But I'm at peace with it. Because he can't overlook what God's word clearly teaches. God is sovereign in, over, through salvation. But in his sovereignty, it has to be matched with a response. Whosoever The question is, will you? Will you submit and surrender your life unto the Savior? Will you receive that pardon? It's only through the sacrifice of the Savior that we can have any hope of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your great love, grace, and mercy. Father, I pray that each and every one of us would seriously consider what we do and how we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this room, there are those that are your children and those that are not. Father, I pray that your spirit would move among us, guiding, instructing, leading helping us to understand what decisions we ought to be making in moments like this. Ultimately, the greatest decision that any of us can make is to submit and surrender our lives unto You. For those that have done that, Father, help us in the day-to-day living. Help us in that sanctification that is at work in and through our lives. Help us to have a greater desire to know your word and to rightly apply your word to our life. Help us to warmly embrace the the spiritual gift that you have given to us and to rightfully exercise that gift among the body for your glory and for our good. God, help us to love one another and to serve one another. Help us to love you and to serve you. In this moment, Father, as decisions are being made or decisions that need to be made, I pray that we're not worried about anybody else in this moment, but what we ourselves need to do in response to your word. God, may you be glorified. May you be praised in how we respond to your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.